0: Our passage this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body To be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved
1: morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Steve Evans, and I'm the administrative pastor and staff leader uh, at Cole, as well as serving on the Elder Council as secretary and treasurer. The idea of entering into times of rest from labors and reflection upon one's calling is an ancient one. It seems to go back to the very beginning of the narrative of God's relationship with His creation. There is no question in my mind that serving Christ in ministry is an emotionally and physically taxing proposition, so taking time away from that labor for rest, prayer, and reflection is also a good thing to do. The elders have decided to give Jackson Kramer such a time in the form of a sabbatical from his regular duties and responsibilities. Jackson has been faithfully and diligently serving our body for 24 years, and we think that it is time for he and Jeannie to have some time for more more extensive downtime than the usual vacations allow. Jackson will be taking a three-month sabbatical uh, for the months of September, October, and November. During his sabbatical time, others will be covering for him by way of Sunday teaching, leading the men's ministry, counseling, and in other ways. God has provided us with gifted and skilled people to temporarily fill these roles. Then in December, Jackson will rejoin us in his regular duties and responsibilities, but with a refreshed understanding and perspective on God's calling for him that comes from times of intentionally stepping away from life's urgencies and seeking out the Lord. Please do join the elders in praying for the filling and the leading of the spirit for Jackson and for Jeannie during these three months of sabbatical that co- are coming. We thank you for that, and thank you for partnering with us in prayer in all these ways. Jackson, we, we truly appreciate you.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. That means a lot. I I love this church. I love you. Our hearts have been knit together over the years, and I really want, for whatever time God has for me to stay at Cole, I want to be able to give my best. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how God will just kind of restore and strengthen me through this time away and give me a chance to hear from the Lord. But I love being part of a church where, you know, Cole won't miss a beat because we have so many gifted people who step in and and uh, So it's going to be just good for you, and, uh, but I think good for Jeannie and myself as well. So. But thank you so much. On July 4th, 1992, Jeannie and I were in Lake Tahoe. I was pastoring there before I came here 24 years ago. And it was the 4th of July, a lot going on, but a huge storm blew into the lake. The Tahoe Queen, which had over 300 people on board, was buffeted by the storm and knocked off course and crashed into a sandbar. It took many, many hours of boats and shovels and even a truck trying to push it off to try to get that Tahoe Queen free. In that same storm, my friend Leonard, who had a small charter boat, his boat was very close to some rocks, some big, huge rocks. Though his boat was tossed to and fro by the storm, it stayed fine. Why was that? Well, because it was anchored to a rock deep down under the surface. You see, life inevitably throws big storms our way. Jesus promises that. He promises, on the one hand, that Christianity will be unpopular, that we will be hated simply for carrying his name. Nations will come and go, including the United States. Personal storms of physical problems, relational difficulties, rebellious children, everyday stress, work pressures, unresolved relationships, tough marriages, our own sinful failures, those who sin against us. And we could go on and on, but these are all storms that hit us often without anticipation. So what's the difference between those that handle the storm well and go through it and those who end up knocked for a loop, stuck, angry, a mess? Well, as we know, it's all about who you're anchored to in chapter four, verse one, that was just read to you. Paul says in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my brethren, my beloved Paul's passion for the church in Philippi was that the church that he loved so much would stand firm in the storms of life that he knew were coming and that they would reflect God's glory to a hurting world. So he challenges them as to what they need to be using as anchors to anchor themselves to the rock, which is Jesus. And as he challenges them, he also challenges us. And when I think about us as a church, not just Cole Community Church, but the church in America, I do think some much more severe storms are coming. And my passion for us as a body is that we would learn to be anchored in Christ in a much deeper way because the storms are coming. Pray with me, and we'll look at this passage together. Holy Spirit, you are the one who teaches us all things. Teach us this morning. And Holy Spirit, you are the one who convicts Today, would you convict us of what we need to repent of and of how we need to change? And Holy Spirit, you are the one who changes us, who produces the fruit of the Spirit. From our time together this morning, would you produce the fruit of the Spirit in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first anchor that anchors us to the rock that he mentions in this passage is that we would fix our eyes on godly examples. Fix our eyes on godly examples. Notice verse 17. I'll read it again. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now, I don't know about you, but I read verse 17, and it can sound a little arrogant, right? Paul says, hey, imitate me. Do what I do. All of you join together in imitating me. But what's Paul really saying? You see, throughout this book of Philippians, he has shared his heart and how God has transformed his heart from being a self-righteous rabbi, Jewish leader, to a man whose heart is consumed with Christ. Chapter 1, where he says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Chapter 3 that's just been taught so well by Dan and Jared where he talks about, I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting what lies behind, considering all the resources I had and the degrees, PhDs and MAs and all of that. I consider that rubbish compared to knowing Christ. So I press on to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says here in chapter 3. Paul was very aware that he was a sinner and that he was not perfect. 1 Timothy says, I'm the chief of sinners, in fact. But what he wants them to imitate is his Christ-centered life, a life where the things of the world really don't matter to him anymore as he presses on to know Jesus and his life. So... As I read this, it raises the question for me personally, and and hopefully it does for you too. Am I able to say the same thing? Could I say to those around me, you know, imitate me. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but imitate my oneness in my devotion for Christ, my Christ-centeredness of my life where I'm not living for things of the world, but my heart is really taken by Christ imitate me. Am I able to say that? Are you able to say that? Not because we're so great because Jesus, but because Jesus changes the desires of our hearts to make him the center of what we want to become and be. And he says this, he says, and observe those who walk according to the pattern. So watch others as well. Besides me, he says, look, he says, that word observe is scopeo, scope out. Put your scope on people, he says, who walk in the same way. Who have Christ as the center of their lives. So how do we do that? What does it mean to, to put your scope on people who are living Christ-centered lives? Who do we watch? Well, let me give you three different categories of people to watch. Number one is biblical examples like Paul, like the examples he gives earlier in this book of Epaphroditus and Timothy, like Abraham who left everything in Haran to come and follow a God to whom he didn't know was leading. He didn't know where he was leading him. People like David who was a man after God's own heart who certainly wasn't perfect but he was devoted and centered on God in his life. Biblical examples like Daniel, who, though he was in exile and had to live in such a difficult culture in the Babylonian exile, and yet he stayed centered on God and following him first. We have plenty of examples that we can scope out and keep our eye on and meditate on and think about, biblical examples. But we have, secondly, a lot of examples from church history. One of, the, one of my favorite things to do is to read Christian biographies. People throughout history who have lived Christ-centered lives. And I really encourage you to pick up some of these biographies like Hudson Taylor, Augustine's Confessions. We studied that in a class a couple of years ago. There's a good biography of Oswald Chambers, George Mueller, William Wilberforce, who helped get rid of slavery um, in England. Charles Spurgeon, I like reading about his life because Charles Spurgeon was one who experienced a lot of severe depression and yet he kept following God in spite of that. Uh, There's tremendous examples. There's many, many more. I'm just throwing out some here, but I encourage you to look at church history and let them inspire you to keep Jesus first in your life, to help you see that it can be done and how it can be done the third category of how to who to imitate i think is the people that god has put in your life today people you know we can learn so much from those around us to think about who who am i imitating who who would i like to be like in their christ centeredness i so appreciate david and carolyn roper for example who whose lives have been lived to serve Christ, and here they are, um, their health is failing, it's very difficult, and yet they continue to minister to pastors and their wives throughout Idaho with everything that they have left. See, it's a beautiful picture, but I I encourage you to think of who in my life do I know that I want to scope out? To keep my eyes on and to learn from, to rub shoulders with. And I want to especially encourage the young people here. There tends to be an attitude today of why would I learn from someone older? You know, I've got the internet. Everything's there. But there's nothing like rubbing shoulders with someone who's older and letting them mentor you and learning from them what it means to really follow Christ. And for you older folks, I encourage you to spend whatever time God gives you to mentor others, to find younger people to hang out with. It may be family, relatives, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. It may be others. Teaching Sunday school, Mark and Marsha, what a wonderful thing. They're both retired, but they've invested themselves in so many young people, including my own granddaughters, over the last four years. Wow, what a beautiful picture of what we can do. You see, we need to rub shoulders. Why is it so important to anchor yourself to good examples? Well, for one reason, because we're all imitators, whether we realize it or not. You know, start with my grandson, Obi. He, he's in this point where he's just a little over a year old. He imitates everything. Everything you say, everything you do, he mimics it. And the older youth, you know, they they think, well, we don't imitate, we just do what everybody else does. (laughs) We just dress like everybody else, have the same kind of cell phone, wear the same kind of shoes, and do the same things. Because we're rebellious. (laughs) We were all like that, right, when we were that age. And we get older and we imitate the world around us and our culture and that work and we do it in more subtle ways, perhaps, but we're all imitators. We may go to church, but notice what he says here in verse 18. You've got to pick out the right people who put Christ first, because many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, Paul feels this so deeply, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. I think he's talking about people in the church and in the culture. And he says, many, most, I think he's saying, who live for themselves. They may go to church, but their lives are really about finding comfort and ease. Their God is their belly. Whatever feels good, that's what I do. They look for things and power and status, the things the world offers. And so it's really important who we're watching and who we're imitating because it's easy to be led down a bad path. And we easily get caught up into just, we can't wait for the weekend when I can indulge my own selfish desires. I can't wait to retirement when I can do whatever I want. Where's Jesus in all that? You see, we've imitated the world around us because that's what the world tells us is, all, is what life is all about. But the ending, he says, of that kind of living where your God is your belly is destruction. It's shame. It's brokenness. What you hope will satisfy you will break you in the end. So it's important to scope out the right people. This word where it's uh, the belly... You know, it's it's the word for guts, the inner inner being where where your guts, what you just desire and want, and if your God is your belly, then you're just living for your own self indulgence. Interesting what Jesus wants to do with that part of us. In John chapter seven, verse thirty seven and thirty eight, he stands up at the last day of the feast and he says, Is anybody thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. And if you drink of me, he says, out of his guts, out of his belly, out of his innermost being, same word, will flow rivers of living water. You see, his plan, if we learn to keep our eyes on the right people and imitate them and look for ways to keep focused on Christ in the midst of life, to press on and to put him first, and those are the people we're following, then rather than our belly being our God and we're just living for self, our bellies become this place where the Holy Spirit dwells and gets poured out and other people can drink of the life of Christ in us. I love that picture. So the first anchor, he says, is be anchoring yourself in godly examples. Who We don't worship them, but they point us as signposts to Christ. They anchor us to Christ. They help us know how to to cling to him in the storms of life. The second anchor I see he gives us in this passage, how to anchor ourselves to Christ, is to fix our hope on heaven. Fix our hope on heaven. Years ago, I was on a missions trip, and I got to go to India. And at one point, this Indian family invited me to their home. I was in Hyderabad, India. And so they said, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll send an auto rickshaw to pick you up. Well, that's a good name for it. Pretty rickety, these auto rickshaws. It's basically a motorcycle that's three-wheeled, and you get in it, and it's a little taxi we're whipping through town, and we're just missing all kinds of people. We finally get to their house, and we sit down, and it's and they've made this nice dinner, but they put down some big leaves on the table, and then they dump some rice and a bunch of yogurt on it, a bunch of stuff, and then you just eat it with your hands. And all I could think of is, I'm going to get really sick from this meal, Probably. <laughs> But, you know, hospitality was great. So I start eating. But, you see, I'm sort of ambidextrous, and I use my left hand a lot. I was using my left hand, and they just laughed. No, no, unclean, unclean, unclean. Oh, I switched, you know. But it was obvious I was not at home. (laughs) They were at home, but I was not at home. I didn't fit there. So many things felt odd to me. But to them, everything felt normal because they were home. You see, for a traveler, home is always somewhere else, isn't it? It's not where you are at that point. The second anchor he gives us is, fix your hope on heaven. Listen to what he says. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, he says, O Philippians, is not here. When you and I were born, we were born, most of us in this room, were born into this country. We were born as citizens of the United States. But what we sometimes forget is when we were born again... If you've given your life to Christ, you are born again and you are now citizens of a new place, the kingdom of God. You've received a new passport. You have dual citizenship. You don't totally abandon your U.S. citizenship. I get that. But your primary citizenship is now the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying here. That's our primary citizenship. But this creates a tension for us, doesn't it? Because we have this dual citizenship. What we need to realize is that the church, you and I, when we were born again, we became an outpost of the kingdom of God in this world. Whatever country you're in, it doesn't matter. You are now an outpost of the kingdom of God in this world. That is your primary citizenship. So it challenges us, doesn't it? Which which is primary, actually, in my life? Which passport do I live by? Am I really comfortable in this world? If I'm really comfortable in this world, then I'm not really probably living as a citizen of heaven. If when I watch TV and I watch the news and... I read books and just expose myself to the friends at work and expose myself to this culture, if I don't feel a sense of, man, I do not belong here. I'm a traveler, but this is not my home. If we don't feel that, then that should challenge our hearts, brothers and sisters. That maybe we're pulling out the wrong passport. Maybe we're not living as citizens of heaven, And that's why Paul says, oh, if you want to be anchored in the storms of life, you've got to see your primary citizenship as the kingdom of heaven. Philippi, where this book was written to, was a Roman city. The greatest privilege you could have in Philippi was being a citizen with all the rights and privileges and honor it gave you. The Roman Empire was powerful. It was the most powerful, stable nation on earth. There was economic prosperity. But you know how it maintained its power was through power and control and military might. And it demanded absolute allegiance, especially to Caesar. And you know who the Caesar was, the emperor at this time? Nero, who, by the way, murdered his own mother, Killed off all kinds of rivals. But if you're a citizen of Rome, you had to bow the knee to Nero and call him, these are the terms they used, Savior and Lord. But the kingdom of God is ruled by Jesus, who is truly Savior and Lord, is he not? He demands our absolute allegiance. But the politics of his kingdom are not power and control. The politics of his kingdom are servanthood and dying to self. So for us as Christians, this creates a great tension, doesn't it? If Jesus is Lord, that means we must put him first and put our hope in him, not in this country or military might or any economic prosperity or anything that this world might offer us. That must not be our hope. Or when the storms come, we will be knocked into the sandbars of life. Is he truly first in our lives? Paul says, your citizenship is in heaven. Are you living for that? Is your heavenly passport the first one you pull out in your life? We need to remember that this country is a great country. We have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? But this country will not last. At some point in history... Sooner or later, it will lose its position in the world and pass away. If your hope is in America, you will be swept into a sandbar. If your hope's in money, you will crash. If your hope's in what you have, you're in trouble. But if your hope is in heaven, whatever happens in this world, yes, it will affect you, but it will not knock you down see our hope. What does he say that we look forward to, that our hope should be in? We await longing for a savior from heaven, for Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one we're longing for to be with in heaven, in being with him who will rescue us. And it says he will come and transform our earthly bodies into our heavenly bodies. We Long for being like Jesus, transformed, have a sinless body like his. Waiting for Jesus, longing for him, and longing to be finally what God created us to be all along, pure and sinless with a healthy body, is worth anchoring your soul to, brothers and sisters. Anything else in this world, you're in trouble. But putting your hope there. We'll see you through the tough times. That's worth anchoring your soul to. Many of you know Joan Calhoun. Cancer is ravishing her body. She's going through chemo now. But I love talking to Joan, texting with her, getting her updates, because what you see in the midst of what she's going through is a Christ-centeredness that longs for her Savior. That whatever happens to her body, she's okay. Why, why can she be so firmly anchored in this terrible storm she's going through? Because long ago, <laughs> she started putting Jesus first long ago. She started longing for him. She fixed her hope on heaven. Are we doing the same? And by the way, she's a wonderful person to rub shoulders with. Don't tire her out. (laughs) But to imitate because of the Christ-centeredness of her life. And you know of others, I'm sure. But I just encourage you. If you want to be anchored in the storms of life, stop holding on to this world so tightly and anchor yourself. Fix your hope on heaven. The third anchor that he gives us, It's more of an implication I see in chapter 4, verse 1, and that is that we invest deeply in community, as Adrienne pointed out. Let me read that verse again and really listen to Paul's heart here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see. Literally, it's therefore my beloved and longed for brethren. And by the way, brothers and sisters is what that means my joy and my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Notice how Paul gives us something else to imitate here. (laughs) His deep connection to the Philippians, his heartfelt connection to them. They are kindred spirits. They are of one heart. He has a deep love for them. Their hearts are knit together. Paul invested himself deeply in his relationship with them. And that meant that he made himself vulnerable in a way that he could truly be hurt. And Paul was hurt at times. You've heard that t- description in Second Timothy chapter 4 where he's about to be executed in a Roman jail. And he says this in verse 16. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them." All those people Paul had invested in and poured his life into, they did, at his time of greatest need, abandon him. And that happens. We get hurt. But he still didn't hold back. So many of us, we get hurt a little bit and we hold others at a distance. We, we don't want to invest in relationships. That's too painful. And, and we withdraw, shut down, put up walls to protect ourselves from hurt and rejection. But what Paul, I think, is modeling for us is that it's the depth of our relationships with one another that will anchor us in the storms of life. We desperately need each other. I going to remind you of an illustration that Jared Kenning used last week when he was teaching, uh, the illustration of the redwoods, how they're the biggest living thing on earth. They're massive and they're huge. But when you find out how deep their roots go. They only go 15 feet down. They, they don't go very deep at all. And because of that, if a windstorm comes up, if there's a redwood sitting by itself, it will fall. How do they stay strong? Their roots, they've discovered, go out and they weave. They go way, way out, hundreds of feet, and they weave with other redwood trees' roots, and they weave together in this powerful, strong connection, network that allows them to stand up in the biggest storms that come. Paul says, you are my joy and my crown. He says, my roots are, are interwoven with yours, Philippians, how I do, my joy <laughs> and my sense of, of success in life is all wrapped up in you guys. We are so connected that our lives matter to that extent. The strength of your fellowship with others will determine how you do in the storms of life. The strength of your fellowship with others will determine how you do in the storms of life. I have a friend who was going through a tough time in his family, and he felt... That his church, though some people stood by him, he felt like his church didn't respond in the way he wanted them to respond. He withdrew. He has now not gone to church for 11 months. He's given up. How sad. Those who think it's just me and God, you know, church is a bunch of hypocrites anyway. I don't need them. We're going to stand firm. I'm going to be this Redwood standing by myself. <laughs> How foolish. How foolish. That is not how we get through the storms of life. And you will end up toppled over. You will end up crashed on a sandbar. Yes, relationships are difficult and they take work. But it's the only way we can stand firm in the storms of life. And the work is worth it. So the challenge for you and me today is, are we part of a community that knows you? That knows your struggles? And you're learning to love them well and... To let them love you well. Whether it's maybe a growth group where you're getting to know each other well and really care for one another. Whether it's the men's ministry, a small group, an accountability group, one of the women's studies. Maybe the teenagers group. So many older folks get isolated Get into teenagers if you're not involved and build relationships there and care for one another. And uh, I just can't mention all the small group ministries here, but let me challenge you to be involved in something. Don't get isolated. We need to be in community. Some of the saddest stories you hear are of those who face the storms of life and they're all alone sitting in a nursing home or in the hospital and they're all alone. Don't be there. Take the risk. Join a group. Storms will come, either in culture or in your own personal life, or, of course, both. So how do we stand strong in those storms and not get blown into the rocks? Well, we have to anchor ourselves to the rock, Jesus. But how do we do that? Well, Paul gives us three very practical ways here. Number one, fix your eyes on godly examples. Who are you watching? Who are you imitating? Who does your life begin to look like? Is it the godly people in the scriptures and in church history and in your current life? Fix your eyes on godly examples and imitate them. Fix your hope on heaven, especially on Jesus' return and on your new body, knowing that this world is passing away. And that you are a citizen of heaven, not of this earth anymore. And third, invest deeply in relationships so our lives will be intertwined and strengthened as we learn to love one another. These are the ways we shall get through the coming storm. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the rock. But to stand firm in you, to be anchored in you, takes more than just saying it. We need to begin to make choices that help us in our weakness to fix ourselves firmly, to anchor ourselves in you. And it's obvious from here, the key is our relationships with one another, who we're imitating, who we're investing in, and how we're doing that, and, and how we look for our real hope in what's coming, not in this earth. So, Lord, may you help us to do that, that we may stand firm so that rivers of living water will pour out from us so others may drink deeply of your life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.